2: The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science, where our show this week is even fuller than usual. We'll hear who's won this week's Lasker Prize, the most respected award in medicine short of the Nobel.
3: The Lasker Awards have a long history of really shining a light on some of the most important innovation in medical and clinical research.
2: Also on the show, I'll talk to the best-selling author Audrey Niffenegger about dreaming and string theory, continuing our arts and science theme from previous weeks.
4: I've had string theory explained to me on several occasions, and I often have the feeling that I understand for about the duration of a dinner party.
2: And Science Magazine reports on the bugs eating hydrocarbons from the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico
1: sort of like children with the decision whether they want to eat vegetables or candy. They'll tend to go with the candy, and these natural gas components are a lot like candy to the microbes.
2: I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. I'm joined in the studio by Chris Rapley, the climate change expert and director of London's Great Science Museum, and by Felix Greaves, a public health scientist who spent the last three weeks working here at the FT as a science media fellow sponsored by the British Science Association. Hello, Chris. Hello. (laughs) And hello, Felix. Hello. We'll start off by hearing from Audrey Niffenegger, author of the novels The Time Traveller's Wife and Her Fearful Symmetry, and also a powerful graphic artist. She talked to me earlier about the influence of science on her writing and drawing and about her latest images of dreams.
4: The dream images are a reoccurring theme in my work over a couple of decades. And uh, for many, many years, I've been writing my dreams down. I think I started when I was about 14. In my latest exhibition, some of the images are from real dreams that I've really had. And some of them are dreams I imagine certain characters having. And then there's a bunch of images which are simply of people sleeping and have to do with the sensations of sleeping, You know, like the feeling that you're Floating or levitating or also the the immobility of sleep. I think there's a a whole genre of dreams where people are, something terrible is happening and people feel that they're unable to move or escape. And that's, that's another idea that I've been thinking about a lot lately. I've had string theory explained to me on several occasions, and I often have the feeling that I understand for about the duration of a dinner party. Later on, what I'm left with is this, idea of the I, I visualize it as, as a universe completely full of actual string which I'm afraid is scientifically implausible but um, in the drawing that's kind of what it looks like this woman is floating in in a kind of um, empty space which is which is kind of this nice dark chocolatey brown color and uh, you know she seems comfortable enough because she's being held up by this Luminescent silvery strands of her own hair that kind of loop around and form these glorious patterns. I was working at my drawing table, just making some random drawing, and the phrase, the time traveler's wife, just popped into my head. And that was a very fruitful conjunction of words because it gave you two characters, it gave you their situation. Uh, I told you that the husband was a time traveler, and it kind of implied that perhaps being the wife of a time traveler might be an interesting situation and so from that, I was able to start imagining who these people might be and how they might feel about their their lives the The main research on that one had to do with genetics and um, physics, and God knows i don 't have enough math to really get the physics of of how time travel would work if it could work. So I was fortunate because there is, out there in the world, a book which is called... um, Here, I'm getting it off the shelf. It's called Time Travel, A Writer's Guide to the Real Science of Plausible Time Travel. And it's by a guy named um, Paul J. Nahan. And it was super helpful because it took all those big physics ideas and crunched them into something that I could wrap my brain around enough to at least... At least back up my time travel. In in the time traveler's wife, the time travel is actually a genetic flaw. Which, uh, if you tell that to the scientifically or medically literate, they just go, "Yeah, right." But you know, if you if you're willing to buy that idea, then you can enjoy the rest of the book. My novel that I'm about to start working on is about a nine-year-old girl who has hypertrichosis, which is a condition where you have hair where most people don't, or or more hair. This is a real condition. It doesn't affect people in any way beyond they just have a lot of hair, but I wanted to write about how we treat people who are different, and I didn't want the difference to affect my little character in any way other than just her appearance. So I hit upon this. I was watching a uh, video on YouTube of an actual six-year-old girl in, uh, I believe it was Brazil, who has this? And and it's it's a video of her mom getting her ready for her first day of first grade, I believe it is. And she <laughs> she's having she's having like her eyebrows trimmed, and she doesn't look too happy.
2: That was Audrey Niffenegger talking to me earlier from her home in Chicago, and we'll be printing a selection of her dream images in the Weekend FT magazine early next month. Now, Chris, you're keen, I know, on using. The arts broadly to involve people in science in the science museum, aren't you?
5: Well, well, very much so, and 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 more broadly, it seems to me that there's a, a very interesting conjunction here between science and what we might generally call the arts. A scientist's authority, by and large, is perceived to come from their dispassionate uh, communication of facts. But we know that in many cases, um, persuading people to accept something cannot be done simply by presenting the facts alone and yet if a scientist uh, delves into oratorial and theatrical tricks to get messages across, then they're in fact undermining their basic authority. So working in conjunction with artists, you know, whether it's choreographers or uh, musicians or, or whoever, uh, provides a new way of, of communicating ideas, and the job of the scientist then is simply to make sure that the science that's being communicated is as factually correct as they can.
2: Thanks very much. Well, I think we've got to move on today sees the announcement in New York of the winners of the Lasker Awards. I've just talked to Maria Friere; She's president of the Lasker Foundation, which runs the prizes, and I asked her why we should care about them.
3: The Lasker Awards have a long history of really shining a light on some of the most important innovation in medical and clinical research in the world. We have identified... The importance of things like DNA. We were one of the very, very early uh, awards in mental illness, and all the way until today, the prizes we announced today, which are very relevant to medical issues such as diabetes and macular degeneration.
2: Tell us about today's winners.
3: We have three awards. The first award is, is award in basic research. The Basic Research Award is given to Douglas Coleman and Jeffrey Friedman. They discovered a link, a genetic link, between obesity and genetics. They found a hormone called leptin that tells the body to stop eating. The the second prize is a prize given to a gentleman researcher in um, Genentech for his work and age-related macular degeneration. Dr. Ferrara discovered a vascular endothelial growth factor, which is protein that, in fact, helps with making the blood vessels. And he discovered also a way of stopping blood, blood vessel formation. It's truly an amazing development. And the last award is a special achievement award, we've given it to Sir David Weatherall, And Sir David is one of these outstanding examples of the clinician scientist that in a very quiet and humble way, as he has about him, has changed the world. He, he found a Nepalese girl that had this blood disease, and they couldn't figure out what the problem was. And so Sir David went back to the laboratory and many years of study figured out that it was a genetic disease and he figured out a way of diagnosing it earlier. So not only did he work from the bench, he was one of these examples of people that went from the bedside to the bench and back to the bedside, but he also transformed the way that scientists and clinicians interacted and the way that you train clinicians and scientists all over the world. His contribution to science is that of a statesman.
2: Well, those sound, sound like worthy winners for all three prizes. What will it mean to the men involved?
3: Each award carries $250,000. And if there's more than one winner, as in the case of the basic award, that amount of money is split between the two. But it's more than that. And, and maybe I can quote Sir David. I was quite moved. What he said to me, this was an enormous honour for him. But he said, you know, what's more important to me is that by gaining this award, maybe people will start paying more attention to this disease, it's thalassemia, which he has dedicated his life to. So it's not only important for the recognition in financial terms, but I think for them it's more important for the recognition of many, many, many years of very hard work.
2: Chris, I'm interested in your view of awards. Obviously, prizes like the Lasker do a great job of drawing attention to outstanding work. But would you agree with me that we're in danger of having an excessive proliferation of prizes now? Uh,
5: I'm, I'm not sure I do agree, uh, actually. I, I, I think that prizes fulfil a, a really important role. They, they celebrate excellence, and they also uh, indicate what the peer experts believe is historic and allow everybody then to try and distinguish what you might call the wheat from the chaff and and particularly for young scientists as they develop to encourage them and encourage Outre.
2: Well Felix you're a developing young scientist what's your view might
6: it inspire you in any way the thought of a prize? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's nice to have something that you can put on your CV. But at the same time, you do see those arguments that are quite similar to those ones about grade inflation on the A-levels, that if, there's, if everyone's got one, do they really count as much? Let's talk now, Chris, about your own work, first
2: as director of the British Antarctic Survey and now head of the, the Science Museum. And let's focus on climate change. Mm-hmm. How should a great public institution like the Science Museum Present an issue such as climate change where there's obviously a scientific consensus and there's clearly a vocal group of sceptics who are challenging what you're saying?
5: I think it's been really regrettable that over the last year we seem to have descended into a dreadful, shrill debate where one side is determined to prove they're right and therefore prove that the others are wrong, whereas in fact in very complex issues like this What we need is a dialogue because probably 80% of the terrain is not disputed and then there are some areas where we need to talk. At the Science Museum we have a very strong what we call audience advocacy unit who go out amongst our visitors and discover what they know about things and what they think about things. Um, and as we've prepared for our Atmosphere of Exploring Climate Science exhibition, which will launch in December, we've exposed the fact that generally the understanding of the issues of climate science are very, very, very hazy. The the Science Museum is not the science community. The Science Museum is a place that people come to have an enjoyable day out. They expect some sort of a science museum experience, which is to learn something and for their children to learn something. And so our approach has been to provide an engaging, immersive, memorable experience, which provides a framework to help people engage with this subject, feel more confident about it, and then make sense of the discussion that they then hear in the public arena.
2: Well, give us a bit more of a
5: preview of how you're going to do that in the Exploring Climate Science. Okay. well, we thought long and hard about, you know, what are the basic messages that we're trying to get across? And really, it boils down to five messages. The Earth's climate system is complex and interconnected, and it's very difficult to do one large thing and not have the whole system respond. The second thing is that there are greenhouse gases, a jolly good thing that are, because they keep the planet's surface 30 degrees warmer than it would otherwise be, and we wouldn't be here having this discussion if they weren't there. And they play a role in the heat balance of the planet, and if you change the greenhouse gases, it will have some consequences. The third thing is that there is indisputable evidence that humanity, by burning fossil fuels, about half a trillion tons of carbon over the last hundred years or so, have significantly changed the uh, amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And I, I go back to my time as director of British Antarctic Survey. We were very much involved in the extraction of ice cores from the Antarctic, which had been one of the key sources of evidence that this is true but of course the direct measurements over the last 50 years have shown this too so really the issue is by how much and what will the consequences be the final thing is that there are jolly good reasons for going for a low carbon future anyway not the least you know looming of peak oil the fact that oil comes from parts of the world which are often, you know, unstable and not reliable. And so there are, there are business opportunities out there uh, for those that move into this, you know, new technological revolution. So really, that's the message that we are getting across.
2: That's the educational side. But will there be
5: a fun side as well? Of course, the, the whole thing will be a memorable, immersive, fun experience we're using interactives, which the Science Museum is a pioneer and, uh, and excels at. We've also got some fascinating objects. There will be an ice core on Gallery, a real one, and a lot of other interesting objects too. So if at the end of the day our visitors walk out saying, you know, that was great, and then saying to their neighbours and friends, you know, you really ought to go. It's fun, and, uh, uh, and you, you, know, you learn something too. That'd be, that is our goal.
6: How are we going, Felix? Many scientists have very early and very fond memories of the Science Museum as somewhere that really set them off on their journey. I sort of, I certainly did. I remember playing with those interactive things and seeing those great big machines and clanking wheels.
5: So, um, you know, anything that they can do in that area, um, I will look forward to seeing. It's interesting. It was our centenary year last year. And we um, awarded all British Nobel Prize winners honorary fellowship of the museum. And those that came to the uh, little celebration we held, to a person, uh, said to me, "You know, when I was uh, 15 years old or whatever, I was in the Science Museum, and as often as not, you'd see the involuntary hand cranking motion as they recollected yeah. <laughs> making some machine work." So yes, that's our that's our forte.
2: Are you enjoying? being director of the museum
5: how do, what does it feel like? Well I guess it's being left in charge of the sweet store really um, uh, and I suppose there are two wonderful privileges one is in the middle of the day just to walk out and see people having those life enhancing experiences and just hear the hubbub and, and, and see the intergenerational discussion that's, that's what's wonderful about the Science Museum you see uncle talking to nephew and saying do you realise Granddad built, designed or we had one of those or whatever and then the other privilege I have, which which people don't, is that um, late at night, after events, I can walk through the museum and in the half-light really stand and contemplate some of the objects and think back and you, you look at Stevenson's rocket and realise that, you know, Stevenson's hands were on this and uh, imagine the history and the narrative, the stories it can tell. And uh, when you're on your own and sampling the, the objects in that way, that, that is a fantastic privilege.
2: Lucky you, Chris. <laughs> Now let's move on to Robert Frederick and his report from Science Magazine in Washington about another environmental issue.
7: Thanks, Clive. The Deepwater Horizon blowout in the Gulf of Mexico was the largest offshore oil spill in history. While the cleanup process is still underway at the surface and along the coasts, oil plumes deep below the surface are expected to degrade naturally. While previous reports have shown that microbes were devouring the oil in these underwater plumes, a paper by David Valentine and colleagues in the latest issue of Science suggests that the microbes mostly are consuming the natural gas components from the spill, especially ethane, propane, and butane.
0: The natural gas is spawning a microbial population, and what we now need to figure out is what that population is then doing with the oil.
7: Study author David Valentine of the University of California, Santa Barbara, researches how microbes interact with one another and with the environment.
0: We think we're growing up a very rapid bloom of microorganisms on the natural gas, particularly the ethane and the propane and the butane. And then the question becomes once you have this population, will they turn to those oil components and biodegrade that rapidly, or will they not?
7: The answer is uncertain. In part, that's because of the variability in when and where scientists sampled the Gulf waters. For example, with data taken in the weeks after Valentine's team's data, Rich Camille and colleagues reported in a previous paper in Science that there was very little evidence of microbial degradation in and around the plume they tracked.
0: When we compare the results that we got with Camille's results, I think that they match up rather well.
7: Again, study author David Valentine...
0: And I think that the difference between the two is that in the samples they looked at, the higher hydrocarbons, the gases, the propane and the butane and the ethane may have already been removed from those, meaning that once those are gone, the respiration rates are likely to drop off quite dramatically.
7: Rich Camilli agrees. Camilli is a researcher with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and is not affiliated with Valentine's team's paper.
1: So this paper presents sort of another facet of the puzzle, and the microbes were acting predominantly on propane, which is a very big finding, because there has been some question as to exactly what the microbes were degrading in the plume to cause oxygen drawdown.
7: But, says study author David Valentine,
0: the levels of oxygen have not dropped to the point that microbes would be inhibited, that oil-degrading microbes should be inhibited.
7: Meaning that it is still possible for the microbes to devour the oil in these deep water plumes. Again, Rich Camilli of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution.
1: So, sort of like children with the decision whether they want to eat vegetables or candy, they'll tend to go with the candy, and these natural gas components are a lot like candy to the microbes. And then eventually microbes may degrade some of the other compounds,
7: but at a rate that so far looks to be much slower. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive.
2: Thanks very much, Robert, and thanks to AAAS and Science. Chris, however quickly the microbes eat up or don't eat up the spilt oil, the Deepwater Horizon disaster has obviously been a big political event, at least in the U.S. Do you think it's going to leave a lasting legacy of public opinion as far as energy and oil consumption exploration in the
5: Arctic and Antarctic and so on? Y- yes, of course it it, it will. It's uh, It's been a show changer in, in many respects and I, I think a lot of people in the oil industry uh, recognise that. I think it's been a powerful warning about the dangers of the way that humans are dealing with the environment. On On the other hand I know that you and I uh, would would probably starve in a, a week if the supply of hydrocarbons were cut off at present. So we're all caught in this web. I think the other lessons to learn are the complexity of the Earth system, particularly the biological and chemical and physical interactions, you know, in in the marine environment. But uh, it, the, the sort of bottom line that we have to bear in mind is that the the planet is indifferent. The the planet simply has behaviours, you know, Darwinian behaviours. The microbes respond, you know, to the candy and they'll eat it until it runs out. And what we have to figure out is how that plays out in our interests or not in our interests. But the planet itself is indifferent and it will just go on doing things. And, of course, oil seeps are a a natural occurrence, so there are microbes out there that munch up this stuff. Uh, But we just don't fully understand how effective they're going to be about preserving our interest.
6: I suppose it really goes to show just how complicated a relationship humans have with their microbes. I mean, we can't live with some of them, and there's certainly others we can't live without. But I think increasingly as science starts to understand what these microbes do and actually starts to be able to fiddle with them so that they can do things for us, they may provide clues and answers to um, solving some of the questions we haven't quite got right yet.
2: Thanks, Felix. Before we wrap up the show, I'd just like to ask you, you've spent three and a half weeks in a media environment, including attending the British Science Festival in Birmingham with me last week. You haven't been involved in media
6: work before. What do you make of it all? It's a very different world from science, from from the scientific community. I've seen the process of how news is made, which is very interesting but slightly terrifying sometimes. And I've seen how scientists sometimes get things very wrong when explaining things and don't help themselves. So I think the thing I'm going to take away is that scientists need to be thinking about how to engage the media. I mean, we do this work so people will know about it. And if we want people to know about it, we've got to explain it well and not just to the rest of the scientific community to a broader public. So I think scientists have a lot to learn. What was terrifying? Oh, uh, with the, the atmosphere of the newsroom, the deadlines, everything happens very, very quickly. The process by which news is generated, and the very short attention span of the public. If something is new, you've got to get it out there straight away. Otherwise, it'll be yesterday's news and no one will want to know.
2: And what about the way the media, not just the FT, select their science stories and don't cover other things?
6: Sometimes they've picked out and found the most interesting stories. But other times, it was almost an issue of convenience. Was there a story that day? Was it presented to them? Was someone giving it to them on a plate? So I think the media in some respects does a great job, but in others, uh, and there are limitations of resources and time, um, but sometimes um, they may not cover the biggest or the most important things just just as
5: a matter of convenience and time.
2: Last question for you, Chris. How good a job are we in the media doing at covering
5: science? Could do better, but scientists could do better too.
2: Okay, well, that's a good note to finish on. All that's left is for me to thank very much my studio guests, Chris Rapley and Felix Greaves, for joining us. Thanks, too, to AAAS and Science Magazine. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.